0: Okay. So I have been doing this for, uh, for 16 years now, uh, which means when you do this stuff for a while, you start to forget what things you've already said to people uh, and what stories you've already told. And so there's a chance that this one I've told you before. I don't know. If so, then bear with me. I know I shared it at a camp a few years ago that some of you guys were at. Uh, So just bear, if if I said this story last week or something, just everybody go with it, okay? Just kind of pretend like this is random information. Uh, It was the summer of my sophomore year. I am at a church camp in Bolivar, Missouri. And uh, sophomore high school, by the way, sophomore high school. Um, I'm at this church camp. Uh, There's uh, this this ministry called CIY, Christ in Youth, and they put on a lot of different camps kind of around the country, all of them take place actually on college campuses. So I'm at Southwestern Baptist University there for this week of camp. And uh, lunch is just finished. It's free time. And so I'm making my way back to my dorm room because I'm going to brush my teeth, okay? I'm not not normally a midday teeth brusher, all right? Usually just morning and night. But you know, There are girls at church camp, right? And so you got to put your best foot forward, be ready to impress the ladies. So that's what I'm doing. I'm going back to brush my teeth i got to have the best breath possible, and I'm walking back there. The dorm is on kind of the edge of campus, so it takes me a while to get there. And then my room is up on the third floor of this dorm. So I walk there. I get to the dorm. I go inside the stairwell, and I start making my way up the stairs. And then I get off and start walking down the hallway there. And as I make my way past all the rooms, I come to my room, and I notice that the door is open. This is kind of weird because uh, I was thought, like, I, I couldn't remember if I saw him, but I was pretty sure that my roommates were at lunch, that they weren't there, but, um, so I thought maybe, maybe we left it open, maybe, maybe they're actually here, and I walk in, and there is someone in my room, uh, but it is someone that I do not know sitting in my room, uh, and, and he's not going through stuff or anything, like he's literally just sitting on the bed, hanging out in there, um, and so I kind of stop at the door, and I look at him for a second, and, you know, your brain is trying to figure out how to, like, make sense of this, and so I'm thinking through it, I'm like, okay, my roommate's, I've been hanging out with some guys from other churches and stuff. This is probably one of those friends that's just here hanging out. That's probably what they're doing. I don't know why my roommates aren't in here, but he's in here. He's probably just a friend. Maybe they're down the hall or something like that. So I just tell myself, that's probably what it is. Whatever it is, I'm going to be pleasant. I'm going to be kind. So I say, hey. And he looks at me, and he just kind of goes, hi. I'm like, okay, well, I don't like this guy now. Um, like, like uh, already, like right off the bat, he's going to treat me like a punk. Like, you know, I'm not the weirdo hanging out in somebody else's room, right? And, and he kind of just says that. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to go brush my teeth. The sink is in the back of the room. So I start making my way towards the sink in the back. And as I walk in, I notice something else, which is that he's moved the beds in our room. And so the one he's sitting on is right where it was. They were opposite of each other, and now he's moved this one over here, so it's kind of like an L, these bunk beds here. I'm like, okay, that's really weird. Whatever, man, I'm just, you know, uh, maybe my roommates, I don't know, I'm just going to brush my teeth. I go over to the sink, I reach down for my toothbrush, my toothbrush is gone. (laughs) So now this dude is hanging out in my room, moving my beds around, and, like, taking or hiding my stuff, right? Because my toothbrush is just, like, gone there, and... Actually, so is my toothpaste and my contacts up, and actually none of this stuff on here looks like my stuff. And then I go, oh. And you know those moments where like in the movies where like everything <laughs> kind of starts to come together and you can piece it. I'm like, okay, if this is not my stuff, and those aren't my beds, and that's not my roommate, and I just go, Oh crap, this is not my room, is it? And this guy looks at me and he just goes, Nope. <laughs> uh, And I and I like apologize. I'm like, dude, I am so sorry. I don't know how I did this. I'm so I'm apologizing. And and uh, I realized actually in that moment, just a few seconds earlier, I was thinking to myself, I'm not the weirdo just hanging out in somebody else's room. As it turns out, yes, I was the weirdo, just hanging out in somebody else's room. What had happened, actually, is I had gone up the stairs to go to my room, and somewhere my mind was occupied or something like that, and so I actually got off too early. I got off on the second floor, and so I walked down the hall to the place where my room would have been if I was on the third floor, but instead I was on the second, and I just kind of popped in on this guy, and uh, I'm sure he was really, actually, no, I actually saw him later that night uh, across, like, the big lobby as we were waiting to go in, and I just caught him, we made eye contact as he was pointing me out and laughing to some guys across the hall, so uh, it was, it was a really disorienting experience, that, that moment, like, the, the two seconds as everything was coming together, and I could not figure out why everything was weird but something was off and i think the thing it might be me something's out of place and i think it might be me that that i'm not where i belong i'm i'm not where i'm supposed to be that's a weird disorienting feeling i don't know if you've experienced that uh you, you you're trying to go meet a friend somewhere and and you either plug the wrong thing into your phone or, or maybe something in the GPS thing's not working, and you're supposed to be at like some restaurant, you end up in like this kind of warehouse district, and you're like, okay, this is weird. I'm not supposed to be here. Or, or you showed up uh, for your first day of class in, in uh, English literature, and you sit down, and then the professor stands up a few minutes later and says, welcome to Oakim, and you're like, oh gosh. And so you have that moment where you realize, I am not where I'm supposed to be. Uh, there's other ways to experience that, though. There's sometimes when we're not where we're supposed to be and we recognize it because of the location. There's sometimes when we're not not where we should be or where it feels like we're not where we should be because of the situation. Uh, you play sports, and so you're on the team, and, and there's just these moments sometimes when you really want to follow Jesus. You really want to do the right thing, but... In the locker room, the kinds of conversations that start taking place there, somebody pulls out their phone and they start passing around with this picture on it, and inside you just feel so weird, and you just feel like I am so, like, like a fish out of water, so out of place here, I don't know what to do. Uh, or or you, you go home to visit your family. And, and something's happened in you since you've been at college. Maybe you weren't a follower of Jesus when you left. Or maybe you were, but you never really took it that seriously. And, and then you went off to college, and God began to do some really cool things in your life. And you found yourself changing in a lot of really neat ways. And then you go home, and you, you realize, my family has not, no, though. They're, they're the same that they were, and they still act the same way and talk about the same things. Or my friends want to go hang out. And they don't recognize the kind of change that I have made. And and, and yeah, I used to be into this kind of stuff, but I'm not anymore. I just don't feel like I fit or belong. or, Or a professor in class starts mocking Christianity and the ridiculous people who believe those backwards kinds of things and you just kind of want to shrink in your chair. You ever felt like I just don't know if I belong here. I do not know if I am where I'm supposed to be. That is the state. Of Peter's listeners, the people that he is writing his letter to. These are people who grew up in this place, Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, Rachel told you last week. And they grew up there doing all the things that everybody else did around that area. They they followed the same traditions, the same cultural trends. They, They had the same practices. They worshiped the same gods. And then one day, someone told them about Jesus, and their whole life changed as they were introduced to this person who is said to be God and man, who is said to die to make a way for them to know God, and everything changed, and they experienced a new kind of hope, and they experienced a new kind of joy, and mostly it was good, but they begin to notice this thing that ever since that time, they have been really out of step with everything else that's going on around them, with with their friends and with their families, and, and, and with the people they work with, and they just don't quite fit or belong, and, and they feel sometimes like they're crazy. Peter tells them, you're not crazy. You're not. This is, this is real what you are experiencing. You are out of place because, and, and we read this word in the very first verse of Peter, he calls them chosen exiles. People who are not in their home country. See, this is the thing about them. Their location has not changed, but their home has. Okay? They're, they're still where they grew up, but Peter says, this isn't your home anymore. It's, you're not going to fit because your citizenship is in heaven. Your home belongs with Jesus. And while you walk this earth, you are exiles. You're going to be out of step. You're not going to fit where you are. And so even though they used to live like everyone else, worshiping the same gods they did, engaging in the same sexual ethics or lack of ethics, engaging in the same division between classes and races, they used to live all those things, and now they're called to live differently, and they're trying to, but they're facing opposition for that. So how do you live like Jesus in a world that constantly opposes that way of life? And in their case, it doesn't just oppose that way of life physically opposed them, some of these people were being persecuted, were, were facing suffering, they were losing jobs, they were, they were facing physical pain over the things they do. And how do they do that? How do you live like exiles in a world that is not your home as you try to follow your one true King Jesus? That is one of the key questions of 1 Peter. It's a key question for his audience and it's a key question for us actually today because we live in a world that is not our home. We live in a world where people do not wants to walk the way of Jesus. And so how do I live out my faith in him in this time and in this place? We're in chapter one, verse 13, and we'll make our way just a little bit into chapter two tonight. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along. It'll also be on the screen. Here's how verse 13 of chapter one starts. Therefore, okay, stop. One of the things we want to do, we talk about this, we don't want to just teach you the Bible here. We, we really, really, really want to do that. We also want to teach you how to read the Bible for yourselves, how to study the Bible for yourselves. And one of like a kind of a really simple but key practice in reading the scriptures, trying to see how ideas flow together. And, and any time you come across this word, therefore, that's a really good hint for you. Okay, Therefore basically means what I'm about to tell you is built upon what you just heard. It flows from the things that you just heard. Uh, one of the ways that this is said is, you, you may have heard this, anytime you see a therefore, you're supposed to look back and see what it's there for, right? Okay, so that's the idea. Why is this here? And, and what Peter is saying is, I'm about to tell you some things. I'm about to tell you how you should live, but you need to recognize that what I'm about to tell you is built on these things I just said. And what did he just say? Last week, Rachel taught us about this last week. He talked all about the greatness and beauty of salvation what they have received in Jesus. He said that because of God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth into living hope through Jesus. He says that we have an imperishable inheritance waiting for us in the new heavens and new earth. He says that we are guarded by God's power because Jesus died to save us, but he did not stay dead. He rose again, which means you will too one day, Peter says. And God says that this plan, or, or Peter says, this plan, this gospel plan is so big, so beautiful, Angels long to look into it, long to stare at it. You know how we want to go to the Rockies to go just take in the awe and the majesty of the mountains. We want to go and see the Grand Canyon and just sit there and stare at it. Angels want to do that with the gospel. Angels know where real majesty is. Angels know where real beauty is and they love, they long to look into the incredible plan of God to save his people. And and Peter says, that's what you need to know. Now, therefore in light of that gospel, in light of what God has done for you, in light of who he has made you, now here's what I want you to do. Here is how I want you to live. This is a key truth, by the way. Christian ethics are never random. There is no, hey, do this because eh, we should all be good people, so live like this. There's none of that in Christianity. There is no, do this and that way God will like you more. Do this and you can earn God's favor. Do this and you can get into heaven and be with him. That's that's every other religion, but that's the opposite of the way Christianity works. Christianity always starts from what God has done for you. God has already loved you. God has already given you grace in Jesus Christ. And so our actions flow from who God is and who he has made us to be. We call this gospel-centered life at the table. We talk about it over and over again. Our actions flow from who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, There's this scholar named Edmund Clowney, and he says this, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Every imperative in the Christian, in the Bible, is going to begin with therefore, even if the word is not literally there. It's always based on something that is true about God or what he has done for us. So Peter's going to give five imperatives in this text. And over and over again, I want you to watch this pattern. Every time he gives them an imperative, a command, this is how you live, he's going to tie it to a deeper theological truth about God or about them. So what I want you to do is as we read, pay attention for words like because or since or therefore or for. Those kinds of things. Watch the lines or the connections that he draws between these things. Now, back to verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First big imperative Peter has for his listeners, live in hope. Set your minds completely on the hope. These are people who have been through the ringer. As I said, they're losing friends. They're being kicked out of their family, some of them. They're losing jobs. They are social outcasts. And, and, and Peter knows if, if all they do is look at the life around them and the world around them, there are going to be days when they go, is this worth it? Is this worth all the stuff that I lost to follow Jesus? Peter goes, it absolutely is. You need to know that. But in order to know that, you've got to set your mind and your heart on things beyond what you see right in front of you. Set your hope on the grace that is coming to you in Jesus, on the blessing that is coming to you in Jesus, on the joy that comes when King Jesus returns to you. This is huge for them, that they will always be looking beyond what they can see in front of them. And the, therefore, of course, the, the, he ties this command, set your mind, your heart's on the hope. He ties that to the gospel truth we heard last week. Verse 14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Second, big imperative, do not conform to your former ignorance, to your former desires, but instead be holy. Uh, It is one thing, by the way, to sit in that locker room and feel uncomfortable and go, gosh, I don't want to take part in any of this stuff, and I don't know what to do in this situation. But it's another thing, actually, when you sit in that locker room and there's half of you that goes, I don't want to be a part of this, and there's half of you that really does. When you go back home and your friends invite you to go hang out and you know they're going to do stuff that's probably going to get you into trouble And and you feel sort of uncomfortable about that, but if you're honest, there is something in you, there is a desire in you that is drawn back to that old way of life. That's when things get really, really hard. We're going to spend some more time talking about that in the second half, so I'll be brief on this point. But the call here is that they would not give in to that, but that they would be holy. To be holy in the Bible just means to be set apart. It means to, to be not like everything else. And the reason they're called to be holy, he says, is because the God who called you and the God who saves you is holy. Be like him. That's what he's like. And, and he actually quotes from the book of Leviticus. This, this phrase comes up four or five times when God calls his people out of slavery and he gives them the law. Four or five times he says, Be holy for, your, for the Lord your God is holy. Be holy because I am holy. And that gets repeated over and over again. Often when we think of holiness, we think just like moral. So to be holy is like the opposite of sleeping around or the opposite of looking at pornography or the opposite of getting drunk, those kinds of things. And and that's true. That's included in there. But holiness actually means set apart like unique and different in everything. So God's love is holy because it is completely different from any human love you've ever experienced. God's Anger is holy. God's compassion is holy. All these things about Him are holy, and we are called to be like Him. That is the call. Verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The third imperative, conduct yourself in reverence. Why you live this life here. Recognize who God is and live accordingly. He actually gives two reasons for why they should live this way. Two reasons that actually seem the opposite to most people. Love and fear. And he says both of those things are connected to how you ought to see God and that ought to change you. He says this, that the God that you worship is a holy God and he is an impartial judge. And one day, I will stand before that holy God and I will give an account for the way I lived. And I will give an account for the things I said. I will give an account for the way I treated people and for the things that I did when I thought no one was looking. I will stand in front of that holy God and I will talk to him about those things and give an account for those things. And so that ought to bring some degree of respect, of reverence, of even fear to know that truth. But he says this, actually, that this same God who's a judge is also a father whose love is so deep that he redeemed us at a great cost to himself, at the cost of his own son, the precious blood of Jesus. Both of those things go together. And there's some people who struggle to see how those two things go together. Some people really fear God, and it causes them to want to ignore him or get away from him or even hate him because they hate the thought of what it might mean to face him. There's some people who love God, which is great too, but sometimes it causes them to lose their awe for him. And Peter says actually those two things need to go together, and they really can. I'm 10 years old. I'm jumping on the trampoline with my brother Tyler, and we're goofing off and wrestling around, and it kind of turns into a wrestling match, and some sort of sparring match, and I don't remember what he did. I just know that it ticked me off, okay? He kicked me, he's something, I don't know, but the the anger was real there, okay? And I waited until Tyler bounced up in the air and got himself high up in the air, and then I just shoved him with every bit of strength I had. And this is the day before, like, the safety nets around trampolines, okay? So there's nothing there, right? So he jumps up and he's over the trampoline, and then I give him a good hard shove, and now he's about four or five feet off the trampoline. And he just, like, collapses to the ground and hits the ground like a rag doll. Now, what I did not know in that moment is that my father was sitting uh, just inside the kitchen and saw all of this from the window. And my dad was, like, out the door before Tyler had hit the ground, okay? He was flying out there. And my dad was a patient dad, and he was was kind. He almost never raised his voice. He totally raised his voice right there. And he, I mean, he shouted at me and told me, right, Drew, go to your room right now. And in that moment, I walked down past my my brother's crumpled body on the ground (laughs) and then past my dad with my eyes down and up to my room. And can I tell you, I feared my dad in that moment. Now, do you want to know why I feared my dad? It's not because my dad's mean. It's not because my dad is a bad dad. It's because I knew how good my dad was. Uh, My dad's not the kind of dad who laughs when older siblings pick on smaller siblings. He's not the kind of dad who shrugs things off. He takes injustice seriously. He takes wrongdoing seriously. And so I loved my dad, but I feared my dad in that moment. I know that that's not true for all of us, that some of us had dads, That you walked on eggshells around and you wanted nothing to do with him. You were afraid of always setting him off at any moment. And sometimes that has skewed your picture of what God is like. You need to know that's not your father in heaven. It's not what he's like. The father you have is a father who before you ever sinned against him. Who before he ever even created this world was already dreaming up how he was going to save you through Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse 20 that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What he means by that is the Father and the Son already had a plan. They knew what they were going to do. It was just only revealed later to us after we needed him, but they already knew. They knew we were going to need him, and they put a plan in action to do those things. And even as God will judge us, he doesn't judge us weighing all our good deeds and bad deeds to see if we're good enough. What he does is he judges our our, our life to see, did you live the kind of life that shows me you believed in my son? That you trusted in him? Because if you trusted in him, that'll begin to show. And, and if you trusted in Jesus, you don't have to outweigh all your bad deeds with good deeds. No, no, no. Jesus outweighs all your bad deeds. And so you can trust in him. Verse 22. Try to hurry from here. But, uh, oh gosh, I'm in James. That's not going to be any good for us there. Am I right? Uh, Not that James isn't good. It's great. It's just going to be a little bit off topic. Okay, verse 22. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Actually, the the word could be translated like strenuously, like with much effort, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. So here is the fourth imperative. Love one another constantly. Put great effort into loving and caring for each other. Do not be divisive. Put away deceit and hypocrisy and hatred and gossip. Love one another as you ought to love. Why? He says, because you have been purified. By your obedience to the truth. That is just your faith in Jesus is what he means. And you have been born again through the enduring word of God. He says that was the gospel. The gospel has made you a different kind of person that doesn't live in hate anymore. You ought to be living in the love that was shown to you. That's why we love each other deeply. Last command, verses two and three of chapter two. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Fifth command, crave the pure milk of the word. He's not, when he says, like newborns, crave milk. He's not calling them baby Christians or like new believers. That's what I always thought, actually. was He's saying, since you're brand new in the faith, crave brand new spiritual milk for babies. No, he, he, that's not actually the comparison. He's saying, in the same way that an infant cries out, desires, craves more than anything milk from his or her mother and longs for that. That's how you ought to long for the milk of the Word of God. And specifically, he just clarified for us the the word that he's referring to is the gospel. Yeah, you already know Jesus. You still need the gospel. You need to crave it and long for it and look for it over and over again. Why? Because you know how good Jesus is. Because you've tasted and you've seen you know that he is better than what you had before. You know that he is better than your former way of life, and he is worth it, so crave that. And yet, sometimes it doesn't feel like that, does it? Sometimes there are these former desires that Peter talks about that well up in us, and they just, they don't seem to be former They seem to be very present desires that don't seem to want to go away. And I know I should be different. And I know I don't want to do those things I used to do. But I keep going back to them over and over and over again. What do I do about that? What do I do when I know I'm supposed to put those former things to death, but they keep coming back to haunt me? We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. First, we'll take a break. So you can stretch your legs, use the restroom, whatever you need to do. We'll come back. Okay. Uh... So I left us kind of with a question that I want to get into. There, there are a number of, number of verses in this text that I think kind of hit hard. Just some really kind of strong statements, some strong commands and strong purpose behind them. But, but probably the one that I feel like hits hardest a lot for me is verse 14. Uh, this idea of do not conform to your former desires the desires of your past and the former ignorance. in it. These, these desires that I used to have that before Jesus got a hold of my heart that I was drawn towards, that seemed so good to me. And, and there were these things that promised so much if I would just kind of give myself to them. And so I would give myself to them. And yet over and over again, I found that those things, all they did was wreck me. All those things that I chased, all those things that I kind of gave myself towards, all they did was enslave me. All they did was shame me, and they, they severed relationships, both with people and with my relationship with God, straining them to the point of it. Maybe you, maybe you can kind of identify with that. When, when Peter talks about these former desires of your ignorance, before you knew any better, you can think back, and you go, I know exactly what he's talking about. Or maybe you identify more with verse 18 where he talks about this idea that you've been redeemed back from your empty way of life that was inherited from your fathers and you think about the patterns that have run deep in your family for generations. Uh, the, The anger or the bitterness uh, or, or, or just the malice between people, the, the, the addiction that is run. You saw it in your parents, you saw it in your mom, you saw it in your dad, and you swore you weren't going down that path, but you have felt yourself go down that path before. And you know what Peter's talking about when he talks about these kinds of things. Paul describes it this way in Romans 6. He says that all of us were actually slaves to our sin at one point, and then he asked this question, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, Paul says. And I know that now, right? Like now I look back and I go, yes, I know that, Paul. I know the way that led me. I know what that was doing to me. I can see that clearly now. So then why do I still want those things sometimes? You know that feeling. Do you understand that feeling? Why is it that we keep going back to those same dumb things that ruled over us for so long? Why, why do we keep going back and looking at pornography? When we know, it never satisfies like I thought it was going to satisfy. It always just leaves this gaping hole in my chest. Like what I'm I'm doing left me in shame and there was no real joy in it. Why do I go back to trying to please that boy or that girl and let them kind of get what they want from me? Because I just want their approval. I know it's not going to last. I know they don't truly love me the way that they say they do. Why do I continue to hold on to bitterness or envy? As though somehow if I can stay angry at this person, it will make me feel better inside when all it actually does is tear me apart over and over again. How, if God calls me to be holy as I am holy, holy as Yahweh God is holy, and I want that. That sounds awesome. It just sounds also impossible sometimes. Like, like a, a goal too far out of reach when I keep getting pulled back to my former desires, when I keep getting called back by that empty way of life, how can I ever do that? We are not the first people to struggle with that question. We're not the first people who have struggled to be holy as God is holy. You know who else really struggled with that? The very first people to ever hear those words the Israelites when God rescued them out of Egypt and he was bringing them into this new place, this promised land. And this is what he called them to. He said, I I have made you my own special people. And so you're not going to be like the world around you. You're not going to be like Egypt that I called you out of. You're not going to be like all the nations that are going to be around you in this new promised land that I bring to Their wickedness, their sin, their level of hatred for one another and hatred for me, you're going to look different than them. You are to be holy as I am holy. And the Israelites heard that and they said, okay, we'll do it. But it never went well. They would somehow find themselves going right back in their hearts to Egypt, to the very place God rescued them from going back to the same patterns that they saw and were a part of in Egypt, or they find themselves getting wrapped up in the ways of the nations that were all around them and starting to live like them to engage in their idolatry and to engage in their sexual sin. And so Moses would come to them and rebuke them and say, no, 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 you weren't called to live like that. We're to be holy as, as God is holy. And they would say, okay, but then they would find themselves right back in it again over and over and this pattern repeated itself over and over and over again they would sin and turn away and God would call them back and they would sin and turn away until eventually God would send the prophets to them and say repent I, I set you apart to be my people I called you to be like this and you have wandered far from him repent and eventually the people of God just said whatever yeah we're done trying to do that That's call us to live however you want to live we're going to live how we want to live We're going to do what we want to do from here on out. And they ended up embracing totally the life that they used to have and the world around them and they led them to their destruction. They were destroyed by their sin. Why? Because they didn't know any better? No. Of course they knew better. They had been told over and over again. They had been given the law, Be holy as I am holy. It's not that they didn't know better, it's that they didn't want better. It's that something inside of their heart did not want the things of God, wanted their former way, wanted to live for them, wanted to live like the nations around them. There was something inside of them that's actually true for everyone, and that is that sin is not just something I do. Sin does something to me. Sin corrupts our hearts when it takes root, and so, so that we, we continually want more sin. And given the choice between the right and the wrong thing, I, I consistently choose the wrong thing. That's why Paul uses that phrase that we are enslaved to our sins because we continue to do those things over and over again. And all the laws and all the commands and all the instruction in the world cannot change that. The problem is not with me not knowing enough. The problem lies in here. What I need is a new heart. What I need is to become a new kind of person. And one day, God promised, that's actually what's, that's, that's what I'm going to do. At this point, when all had seemed lost because God's people who were supposed to be his holy representation in the world had completely dropped the ball on that, had completely walked away from all of that, at this point where it seemed most dark, where all hope seemed to be lost, God said, I'm not done yet. No, there's more coming one day. God promises in Jeremiah 31, one day I am going to create a kind of people that, that don't just know what they should do, they'll want to do what they should do. Because I'm not just going to put my word in front of their eyes, I'm going to put my word in their hearts. I'm going to stamp it on them so that they'll desire to do those things. One day, he says in Ezekiel 36, one day I'm going to take your hard, stony hearts and I'm going to remove those and I'm going to put a new kind of heart in you that can not just know what you should do, but want what you should do. That's going to desire me. I'm going to breathe new life into you and make a new kind of people. Wouldn't that be amazing to have hearts that could do the right thing, that could want to do the right thing? Now, the consistent refrain of Peter and the New Testament writers is that that has happened. But that's you. That the promises made in Jeremiah 31 about a new people that could know him and want him and know his word in their hearts, he was talking about you if you've placed your faith in Jesus. The kinds of people who have a new heart and their stony heart is done away with and they've got a new spirit inside of them to obey them, he was prophesying about you if you have trusted in Jesus as your savior. That's what Peter said to us in verse 23 and into 25. He says, the reason we live like this is because you have been born again. That old you is gone. And a new you has come. You've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Those of you who have given your life to Jesus because you saw who he was, the very son of God, who died to save you from your sins and rose from the grave. When you placed your faith, in, and the Bible is clear about this, you became a new sort of person. And you are no longer enslaved to your former way of life. You are no longer enslaved to the addictions of pornography or people approval or envy or bitterness or gossip. Those things no longer have the chains on you that they once had. Peter says, you were redeemed from that empty way of life. You've been brought out by the blood of Jesus, no longer doomed to repeat the mistakes of your past, those destructive tendencies of your family. Whether you feel that's true about you or not, it is true if you know Jesus. His Holy Spirit is inside of you making that truth. So then, why doesn't it feel like it? Why am I still drawn to my old sins? Because this truth, what God has done for you in Christ, is powerful, but it's not magical. It's not a waving of the wand, abracadabra, and everything just changes, and now you don't have to do anything now. It's just kind of easy and free flowing. No, 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 it's not magical. It's not a little spell or incantation. It's powerful because it's changing you from the inside, but you still have a responsibility to walk in that power. You still have a responsibility to walk in that newness of life that has been given to you in Jesus Christ. Peter says this. Don't be passive about these things. That's the very first words that we read in verse 13. Have minds ready for action. Be ready to roll. Do be be sober-minded, focused, and aware, aware. The world should not set the patterns for your life anymore. Have you heard of this disorder called, I think it's called pica. Have you heard of this? It's an eating disorder. Oh, my gosh. There goes my nose. I got the ones that count. The rest can go, all right? We're, we're just going to, like, it was going to be improv from here on out if that, if that had blown up. It's this eating disorder where people have this compulsion to eat inedible things, to eat things like paper or or foam or buttons or even like coins and metals, sometimes even uh, not just like hard things, plastic buttons and stuff like that, but dangerous things like nails and needles and and all kinds of things like this and there's this compulsion in them to do these things and there's actually they said that this is a trend that has grown a lot in recent years just uh, between 99 and 2009 grew up almost a hundred percent this disorder in people this compulsive desire to eat these things that they should not eat which is obviously not healthy to you for you but often can lead to death for people uh, I, I read about this guy who read, this is kind of funny, but kind of crazy and sad, who over the course of his life had, had uh, eaten like $650 worth of coins. And when they did x-rays on him, they found his stomach actually sat below his hips because there was 12 pounds worth of metal in his system. And they had to go in and do surgery to be able to pull all of those things out. And some people are not just eating the coins, but they've actually, like I said, finding needles and nails and all those kinds of things in people. And they'll have to go in and get surgery to have those removed, or they'll have to get their stomach pumped when they eat things like laundry detergent that is poisonous to them and those things. And they'll have to do all of those things to get themselves fixed. But the problem is that even after they do those things for these people, they often go right back to the very thing that was killing them in the first place. That the very things that were removed from them, they continue to go and they continue to feed on. And I, I believe that that's actually a fairly good picture of me. That Jesus saved me from all the damage I had done to myself for so many years. Jesus saved me, uh, not just from the things that I'd done, but the way that that had affected me, the way that that was damaging me and killing me. Jesus came and redeemed me and healed me from all of those things. But often I want to continue back in the same habits that I was living beforehand and expect different results. And sometimes I find myself wanting to be like Jesus and wanting to try and follow him. And yet I think that I can do that while still keeping the same kind of apps on my phone that kept getting me in trouble in the first place. And I wanna try to do that while still going and hanging out with the same people and going to the same kinds of places and the same kind of activities that kept getting me in trouble in the first place. And I do these things over and over again and I get frustrated at Jesus that he's not changing me and not fixing me. It's like a person eating nails and then getting mad at the doctor that they're not healed and well. I cannot go back and feed on the same things and expect to live differently. I I need a new diet. I need new eating habits. That's why actually the fifth command that Peter gave us at the end of this, it's the key to all the others. It's the one that helps all the other ones make sense. Let me read that to you again. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. What I need is to crave. What I need is to run after. What I need is to day after day feast on the gospel because the word that saved me is also the word that sustains me. It is also the word that grows me up in Jesus. He says, if you want to grow in your salvation, come back to the gospel over and over and over again. Now, he's talking about the Bible, but he's talking actually about more than the Bible. He's talking about the very things that put my mind and my heart on Jesus and on the gospel over and over again. Remember, actually, most of Peter's listeners couldn't read. They were illiterate. They were dependent on somebody else reading the truth to them and teaching it to them. And so as much as I want to say, read the Bible, and you should because it's a gift given to you, but, but there are other things that when we engage in church and in community, when we are regularly listening to sermons, when we are letting the Bible be read to us through our phones or over and over again, when we are engaging in a kind of community through small groups that will point us to the truths of Scripture and the truths of who we are over and over again, that feeds me, that grows me up in salvation, there are things that I need to do over and over again. There are things that I need to memorize. I need to memorize 1 Peter 1.18. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. I need to remember that. I need to let that be a truth that rings out in my heart over and over again. I need to remember 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has I need to remember Galatians 2.20 and say that to myself every time I feel pulled towards sin that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's not me anymore. That old me is dead. This is now me. I walk in Jesus. I need to be told those things over and over again to feed on those things over and over again. Brothers and sisters, you, are called to be holy as Jesus is holy. You are called to be holy as God is holy, but this is not like every other sort of religion or spirituality where you're being called to become something that you're not yet. You're not being called to turn into something that you're not to become the kind of person you should be. God already made you that kind of person in Jesus. You're just called to live it out now. He's already given you your new identity as a son or daughter in Jesus. You're just called to live that truth. He says this, you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, from your ancestors, and not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. This is our reality. If you are in Christ, you are already his. The the goal is not to become something you're not. It's to become what you already are. And that's my prayer for you and hope for us as we close this night. Let me pray it over you and we'll be done. Dear God, I pray that truth form uh, for my brothers and sisters and for me. Lord, would you give us a love for and a hunger for your truth and your gospel? And I pray for friends who are sitting in this audience who have been overcome by shame and overcome by sin over and over and over again, and they feel like they may never break free of that, I pray that you would remind them of their identity in Jesus. I pray that you would remind them that they have been redeemed from that empty way of life. And I pray that you would help them to see that truth in the gospel, that they would would find ways to remind themselves of that over and over and over again. And Lord, that the things that you have made us to be, that we would reflect on that and that would help us to become that that we would live holy as you are holy. You deserve this from us. Please do this in us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.